Welcome to JR Art Loud, the podcast of Jewish Renaissance. I'm Judy Herman, and it's very exciting for me today because I'm with Howard Jacobson to talk about his latest novel, Live a Little. And Howard, thank you for agreeing to talk to me and inviting me to your Soho loft, I think we have to call it, don't we? Uh, it's a loft, yes, mm. and you're welcome. And it's not the first time we've spoken. No. But maybe this will be the best time we've spoken. I hope so. The other times have been good too. I don't know whether you meant the book to be topical, but I woke up this morning to the news that more over 70s are marrying than teenagers, which I thought was rather wonderful. So does that make your book on the nail topical? Well, I've never wanted to be topical. I'm a novelist. I'm not a historian or a journalist. So, I mean, if life comes chugging along behind my novel... Uh, that's fine by me, but it's certainly not my intention to write, ever been my intention to write that kind of, that kind of, and I don't do kind of social concern novels or historical novels. That's, that's not where I am. No, definitely not, no. But, but what drew you to the idea of writing a novel about two people who are not in their 70s? They're actually, I think, they're both in their 90s? Yeah, they're in their 90s. What drew me to writing a novel about someone... Um, anyone in his or her 70s uh, doesn't need explaining. No. <laughs> um, and I was going to do... I did begin by writing a novel about a man in his 70s dealing with all those rather comical and upsetting problems that a man in his 70s is beset by. Uh, and I just thought, it's actually just a little bit too easy, this. Mm. It was funny, but it just didn't have... It wasn't... It wasn't upsetting enough, or it wasn't challenging me enough, so I set it to one side. And then Beryl appeared. She just appeared. I do, I do go on saying, maybe I should stop saying, because it's beginning to sound fantic- fantastical to my ears, that she just rose from the sea, like Botticelli's Venus, from the sea of my imagination, from the turbulent sea of my imagination, she just rose and was there, clothed, not like, to that degree, not like the Botticelli Venus, and not looking kind of winsome or, or wanting to, you know, or beckoning just herself and determined and ironical. Um, and that's not an exaggeration, that just happened. I believe that that happens when you write novels. I actually believe in this, the, the, the visitation, the visitation mm-hmm. theory of fiction, because it's happened to me often. That things I didn't know I was going to write about, I write about. That characters I didn't know I knew, I suddenly knew. And they and Beryl appeared before me, and it was wonderful. It's interesting because obviously that was the first thing I was going to ask you: Where did the characters come from, and did they spring, you know, fully fledged? And Beryl would love what you just said. I think you maybe even referenced Botticelli's Venus somewhere in it. Um, I, she's wonderfully waspish, but she is. She's got this beauty. I think at the end, someone you say she's got this very long hair as well. So there's still a lot there, but it's that sort of poignancy of being. The old painted. can be. The old can be very beautiful. I mean, there's an elegance about mm. about um, an 80 or 90 year old man if he's if he's looked after himself. You need health, of course. None of this works if if your health goes. And and women can look. Um, very, very beautiful at that. I actually like the old. I've always liked the old. I liked, I wanted to be old when I was a little boy. I didn't want to be a little boy. I hated being a little boy. I was humiliated by it. So I was in a hurry to be old. And then, and the people I looked up to, the men were always older than me, the men I admired, and the women I loved were always older than me, sometimes quite a lot older than me. So, I mean, now I'm as old as I am. They have to be pretty old Mm -hmm. to be older than me. And so that might be where she came from, out of an ancient ancient longing, really. But once I saw her, I thought, Mm -hmm. she's not 70. I don't want to do that. That's too... I really want to make this more of a a test of her grandeur and her intelligence. And, And for me, too, as a writer, how do you make two people in their 90s who haven't met before fall in love? I mean, really, really fall in love in that they want to in that they want to be with each other, um, and for that to work, I thought I don't want any any messing around with disparity of ages. So let's go back to my man who was seventy and having trouble with his with his bladder, and let's make him older, 
um, and having even more trouble with his bladder and trouble with his life and thinking about his life. And then I hit upon the idea, which I'm really pleased with, that she would be worried about losing her memory. And he is a man who is just the opposite. She can't remember and he can't forget. And that they glove in that kind of way. And once I had them at both 90 and her having trouble with words and him just wishing he could have trouble with words because he'd like to forget his life, I thought, they're going to talk about this. They're going to help each other by talking about this. And they're going to talk and they're going to talk and they're going to talk. And this is going to be a novel of the sort I've not done before. Almost all talk. It's not all talk in the end, but the second half of the novel is a lot of talk. And I thought I want it to just be that. I want the sense of them to emerge through their conversation. And I want conversation to be the medium of their love for each other. It's interesting you said the second part of the novel. What I loved, but kept me on tenterhooks, was it? You don't bring them together for an awfully long time. It seems a long time. I think it's more than halfway through, isn't it? Yeah, it's about halfway through. Well, a little bit of suspense. Mm. I'm not above a little bit of suspense. And what I liked, what I wanted, was to see if I could make myself, and therefore readers, because I am, mm. I am the ideal reader. If I feel something, then I have to hope readers will. Could they and could I want them to get together? Could we think, well, they'd, they'd go well together... Um, of course, there's no other reason why they're both there unless they're going to... Why would they both be there? But it seems you, you start to feel, as I started to feel, that there's inevitability, an inevitability about this. How would it work out? How would they get on? Would it, be, would it be frictional or would they argue or would they like each other? And there's a little bit of both. And so that you'd start to feel... Isn't that lovely? He always, I mean, the point of the reason love stories are so popular is that we really like it when when people come come together. We like it. We like people to fall in love. We like to feel we like to feel that it will happen for them. Only it normally happens for the young. And I'm not wildly interested in writing about young love, really, um, because young love, Romeo. And you know, I never liked the play Romeo and Juliet. I always thought they were too young. So, yes, I think I've said it. That was that, the tension of will they, won't they, which is at the heart of any good love story. Well, the, what is fascinating to me is that you, she is, she's not someone you'd love to hate. You love to love her, but she's so waspish. She's very waspish. She's very difficult. Um, she is what you never know with her, and, and even I, who wrote her, uh, except I didn't, she wrote me, <laughs> but even I don't know how far she means what she says. And the cleverest waspish people know that they're being waspish mm. and enjoy the effect of their waspishness um, and enjoy the idea that people might think they're, you know, horrible and they entertain horrible views when they actually don't. So is she really horrible with her carers or does she like teasing her carers? And is she just daring us to... to charge her with such offences as, and I've seen this in an early review of, uh, in America, somebody calling her a racist. <laughs> it's not, it's a madness. Um, she, she plays, of course, with, she plays with saying things to her African carer and to her East European carer of a sort that we are not supposed to say anymore. But when she tells her African carer, who turns up dressed for a Queen's Garden party, because she's going to the Queen's Garden party, in a very tight, floral, kind of African dress, and asks, and asks Beryl how she looks. And she gives Beryl a twirl and then drops something and has to bend down. And when Beryl says, I'd be very careful not to do that in front of Prince Philip, <laughs> who's she teasing? <laughs> Who is she teasing at that moment? I mean, she's just enjoying the absurdity of, of the whole thing. And, I, th I mean, I get... As I wrote her being sort of playfully cruel with them. Yes, cruel is a better word, actually. Um, but playfully cruel, oh, I yes. thought she likes mm. them. I yes. thought she actually likes... Maybe she does things like she feels she doesn't need them. And she thinks she'll probably end up caring for them. And she falls out off the chair sometimes to give them something to do so that they can run in and lift her up again, though she doesn't need that. I mean, that's... It's not monstrous... But it's, it's mischievous. She's on, she's on the slightly edgy side of mischievous. And that gives me, the writer, 
and I hope the reader, a wonderful sense of liberation because we're living at times when you've got to measure everything you say. You've got to be careful with every word you say in case you give a, f a f gender offence, race offence, pronoun offence, and with Beryl, you don't have any of that. Beryl is not going to watch what pronoun mm -hmm. she uses. She doesn't give a damn. And so she's a kind of life force. I felt as I was writing, she is a life force. She has liberated me from, well, not that I worry too much about that, but I still, I'm a, I'm a child of the age, and I too have to worry about not giving too much offence. With her, you don't have to worry. So she's my heroine. She's my best ever character, I've decided, <laughs> and she's the only person I'm now ever going to write about. That's it. Oh, there's more, my goodness. Yes, you actually have this quote, she's been a horrible woman all her life, but she's thinking that, I think. Yes, mm. yes. Mm. And I mean, she's proud of it, you know, she's out and proud about being a horrible woman, in inverted commas. Yes, and she likes the fact that her children feels that, feel that she's not been a very nice mother to them. She actually doesn't like her children very much. <laughs> she's got all these sons. She doesn't like the men mm. who fathered them, them <laughs> on her. She doesn't like her lovers. She doesn't like her husband. Yeah. She's very, very scornful of men. I, I loved writing. For a little while, I was, call, I, I was going to call it Mother of the Nation because mm. she calls herself the Mother of the Nation too when she's telling Euphoria about it and claims to be showing Euphoria a medal. Yeah, Euphoria being the, 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 this is the African carer. The but African I don't, we, we don't know if that's really her name because she tends to give people names, yes, doesn't she? Yes, does. Mm. But Euphoria seems quite a good it's name. A wonderful name. And... Um, I did toy for a little while. It was on my computer as the mother of the nation mm -hmm. because I thought she would, she would actually give us a kind of a history of the, tw of the 20th century um, and the nation but men. Mm -hmm. And there's a very, very, if you add it all together, there is a large compendium of absurd men um, in her life that she writes about in her diaries or remembers or en encounters or talks about. Um, and I loved that. I loved writing that. I loved writing a woman's, a woman's um, disdain for men because I've heard a lot of it. Mm. I've heard women, I've enjoyed women slagging off men a lot. Often me, often I'm the man that's being slagged off. And even, at, even, in, the, even in the worst arguments with women, and I've had a lot, um, I've kind of... Even when I'm at the receiving end of, of a real tirade from a, from a clever woman, and I like clever women, I like clever men, I like cleverness, um, I've admired it. I've admired, the, I've admired the, the resourcefulness of language that a really, really angry woman can, can find when a man has driven around the bend. And the 20th century was the history of men. Well, you probably say the, the whole history of humanity is the history of men driving women around the bend. I'm sympathetic. I'm a man, and I've been kind of sometimes horrible to women and impatient with the usual stuff. But I do appreciate the justice of what women say about, about men. And I liked, I liked writing it. It was a good change for me to do that. Do you know what's really interesting? You have not really mentioned Shimmy at all. You have, certainly haven't mentioned him by name, which is really interesting because you are so into Beryl. So you had to do your yin and yang. You had to have the balance. You had to have this male character who's going to attract her, but it's an opposites attract thing. And I just very quickly, before we go on, she's not actually Jewish, and he is half Jewish. lowering your voice mm. as you say that in case anybody overhears. Oh, I wasn't. She's not Jewish. Oh, gosh, I didn't mean no, she's not Jewish. <laughs> No, no, I know she's not. I know she's not Jewish. <laughs> but certain. it doesn't matter. No, no, it really doesn't. But the title is kind of live a little, you know. But it's not. Yeah, there is a there is a Jewish. I felt it was a very un-Jewish. <laughs> no, I didn't want to write a Jewish novel this time. And then I always feel I've got to give my Jewish readers. I have one or two a little bit. And I also <laughs> like like writing about Jewish things. So I made him half Jewish. <laughs> and then I enjoyed writing about, he has a Jewish mother, but a Maltese father, hence mm. his name, Carmeli. Mm. Um, it's a great name. I love his name. Well, it's the name, I think, of a bagel shop. It is, it is. You're right. In Golders Green. You're so right. It is the one by the railway. Yes, arch. and oh. I don't know if they're Maltese. Um, <laughs> but these were the things that were kicking around mm. in my head when I invested. But the reason I've not spoken about him is... Mm. It's not that he's not as interesting as her, but I've been, I've been in shimmy territory before. 
I've done a shame of shamed men. Mm. He's not an ashamed man in the way that the Jews in the Finkler question were ashamed Jews, shamed of Israel. It's not one of those at all. I see your he, face. You look like you're acting. That was very Shylock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's anti-Semitic. No, it's not. It's anti-Semitic. <laughs> Go on, call, call me out on it. Um, I like writing about shame because I know about shame. I was ashamed of myself as a little boy all the time and humiliated and diffident and red-faced. And I've just, I've just thought of a joke, a literary joke. There was a famous novel that I read when I was a boy called, I think it was by Howard Spring, or was it Howard Fast, called Fame is the Spur. Oh, yes, it is Howard Spring, I'm sure. The qu a quote from, quote from Milton, I think. It's from Milton, I think so. Shame is the Spur. Shame is the Spur, that could have been a title. Had this novel only been shimmies. Mm. Um, oh, you've almost given him a name that sounds like shame in a yes, way. Yes, mm. yes. Um, and I... Shame for me is where it, is where it all... The reason I became a writer is because I just felt abashed. And all the words you want, all the words you can think of in that cluster of the shame cluster. Um, the mortification was followed by... Ignominy was followed by, you know... Yes, um, well. And that was, that, I believe that that was what made me write because there was an instinct to, to, to write about it. Even as a little boy, I would write, I don't know how little, and I probably exaggerate when I say, I leaned out of the ass, I leaned up in the pram and said to mummy, could <laughs> I have a pen and paper, mummy? I just, I'm feeling ashamed and I want to write about it. But, but not long after that, I did. And if I wrote, a, if, if, I'd been, if I'd been rejected by a girl or if I, somebody had made a fool of me, or I'd made a fool of myself, um, if I wrote about it, and if I wrote about it with comedy, if I made fun of myself, I'd beaten the shame. Yes. It, was an, it gave me ascendancy over shame. Now, you could say this is what I was doing was practicing the Jewish experience, the Jewish joke, because that's what Jews do. Jews gain ascendancy over the ignominy of being Jewish, which is what many have been made to feel, um, and worse than that, um, by making a joke, so that we often feel to our enemies, look, we can, whatever you can do, you can kill us, you can put us in camps, you can drive, ride tanks, but we make better jokes than you do. And we make better jokes about ourselves than you do. And we are more critical of ourselves than you can ever be. And in that way, we gain a kind of, we, we've gained, we've actually won. And that was what I felt I was doing as a little boy. I wasn't thinking of Jewish, I was just thinking of me. I won over all these multiplying shames by writing about them and by laughing about them. So I am attached to the history of my shames and like writing and like writing about it and like people who are ashamed. I feel a great solidarity and sympathy for Shimmy. And I don't understand people who aren't ashamed. I never understood why I was a little boy, why I was the only one going red all the time. <laughs> Why wasn't everybody else? There were so many things to be embarrassed by. Why weren't they all embarrassed? Well, so if they left me to the field, the advantage, I turned this to my advantage and became, for what it's worth, a writer out of it. And that's what's partly driving, partly driving Shimmy, who isn't a writer, who took another direction, but who can't get over not so much things that were done to him as things he did when he was a, when he was a little boy. Are we are allowed to reference the thing, because it's only it's sort of one thing, really, isn't it? It seems to be just one thing. That's, and then there are other things during the book, because he doesn't really like human contact terribly much. Well, it's that more than anything else. I mean, the, that little the thing that he does... No, I'm not going to tell it. Let no, or, it. it's a thing that, that he's ashamed of, but to, to do, do with, with his mum. It's to do with mm. human contact. Mm. It's to do with how close you can get mm. to another person. He is, a, he is somebody who, I, I don't think because of this event, um, found it difficult to get close to other people, but because there was something in his nature, he was experimenting with getting close to other people and wished he hadn't. He, he is, he's an unnatural man, and to this degree, he's going to get on very well with Beryl, who's an unnatural woman too. Um, the way she feels about her children is not... She doesn't have a mother's love for her children. And there is an episode in the book which I spent much time writing and thinking about, which is quite serious about... Um, which isn't knockabout, about her incapacity to mother, um, her, not, 
her not liking her, her first child. And in that degree, um, with Shimi not liking his own body and finding it very difficult when his mother gets ill um, and he wonders whether she's ill because of something that he did, he can't cope with her illness. He can't help her. He can't touch her. He can't lift her. He can't bear the smells and signs of, and symbols of illness around her. Whereas his brother, with whom he's in a sort of combative relationship, slightly younger brother, can help. And that's, as much as anything else, what's, what's behind the aloof, cold man that he, that he becomes. The fact that he feels he can't, he can't do the normal things to help people or to be close to people. He is slightly ashamed. He's ashamed of being human. There are people who are ashamed of being human. It's a natural state, I think, and some people have it more than others. And to that degree, there's something in common with him and her. But she's good at seeing it in him, and he's good at seeing it in her. That's one of the ways that they help each other. If you can see what this is in the other person, you can talk about it in a way you can't talk about it in yourself. You, you, now you've mentioned his brother, Ephraim. Um, Ephraim is someone he has to live down all the time. It, it's a bit like Cain and Abel, in a way. I think you actually do mention that somewhere. Um, in that he's the one who's sparkling, outgoing. Yes. One, you know, yes. He's the one, I'm going to win the Second yes. World War, yes. he says, when, when yes. he's marching about as a child with his gun on his back and all the rest of it. Um, so... In a, in a way, I mean, I don't want to give too much away. Obviously, I have to be careful, but he he has to outgrow and outlive that, and he can't really. I mean, that he can't really do that. No, he can't beat the brother. He no. loses touch with the brother. In the, mm. the brother is free and easy. The boy is a you know the the brother is a a spirit of nature, if you like, that very kind of naturalness that Shimmy doesn't have. So he's 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 his natural opposite, and he feels. Um, Made small. Yes, that uh, comes over Ephraim. all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah Ephraim mm. could do what he what he can't do. But but Ephraim you, you, is doing it knowingly. I felt all along. You know, you say he's free and easy. He probably only knows he's doing it. Well, or is that just you? You know, I'm, is, am, I, am I now looking for a way of sympathising and empathising with Shimmy? Um, maybe a bit. Mm. I think I think if you discover that your nature gives you power over somebody close to you. It's your nature that gives you that power. You're likely to make the best of that nature. You could, I mean, one thing that we could do is hold back a bit. I seem to be too vitalistic for my brother. I'll calm myself down a bit. Might be a lot to ask of any person, yeah. really. But hang on a minute. I'm not, again, not trying to give anything away, but he kind of nicks his identity and the big thing that he can do. So, you know, and doesn't well, even That's just part it. of his zest. Okay. There's yeah, a thing lying there. <laughs> no, well, I'm not coming between the two brothers. They've got, they have their fight. <laughs> Um, and yes, I mean, I think, I think the people to whom life comes easy, that's the way to put it. He is a person to whom mm. life comes easy. The people ab about whom I mainly write are people to whom life does not come easy. Mm. And I'm interested in those uh, solipsistically, if you like, because I understand them. I know what it's like to feel that life doesn't come easy. And they're interesting to write about. They are more vexed and interesting. People to whom life comes easily are... You know, they 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 flash their lights, um, they strut their their hour on the stage, and then they're gone. They're just not as interesting to to write about. And a person to whom life comes easy will always will always win socially over a person to whom life is life is hard. That's just that's just the way it is. There's no right or wrong in it. I think one has one has. That's his nature. That's well, his nature. Uh, the title's interesting, though, because I think maybe you're saying that Ephraim is living a lot, and Beryl actually does, she actually pinpointed where she actually does say, live a little, come on, you know, come and stay in my apartment, um, and, which is the thing, he, he wants his own bathroom at all times, because he is so very pernickety and yes. private. I, I have some sympathy, actually, but the title could mean so many things. How much longer have they got? I told you, I worried. I sort of assumed that we were in for... A, I'm not going to say whether we are or we're not, but I was waiting for a deathbed scene because they are so very old. So I thought, you know, uh, are they ever going to get this Not together? from me. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. Life. Live a little. Yeah. My wife, 
um, likes them so much and feels there is so much life in them that she wants me to write a sequel. Oh, wow, that would be amazing. I said, I'll wait and see how this one goes first. I think Um, you want to know, because that means they're going to go on longer. Yeah, Mm. yes. Um, But I've got to decide... There'd have to be a lot of talking. When I mean, they talk a lot, then there'd have to be a lot more talking in this in this next one. But we'll see. People like her. There's no there's no question that people people readers are liking her. Um, the readers who like her far outnumber the readers who think you know she's not very, she's not very nice, is she? Of course, she isn't very nice. Whole point. Yeah. <laughs> she's gleefully not yes, very nice. She's gleefully mm. not nice. Yes. And it, well, it's lovely that you make her into this wonderful English teacher, apparently, in a posh school, posh girls' school. So, obviously, she loves using language. She absolutely yeah. loves it. Yeah. And I think Shimmy does, too. And I think that's when they do get together. It's wonderful, the exchanges. In fact, I, I don't know if you would be kind enough. It's when they first, it's the first meeting they have in a cafe, I thought we might just record you reading that. It's so yeah. incredible. They are at an octagonal table in Regent's Park drinking tea from paper mugs. She has a blanket over her knees. She is struck by the brilliant blue of the sky, sharp daggers of dark cloud progressing with a sort of prearranged menace towards the sun, but then choosing to go by it. The sun survives another day. He, she notices, looks neither up nor around him. The world could be square to him, its edges finishing where he does. But he has remarkably still hands for a man his age. She spills a little of her tea. He does not. You have forgiven me then for waylaying you, she said. It crossed what's left of my mind that you might not agree to come. It never crossed what's left of mine that I had a choice. You don't defy the angel guarding the golden gates. That's an elegant compliment. I'm surprised by it. Ephraim said... He was the more poetic of the two of you, Ephraim Wood. So what did you see in me that you didn't dare oppose? Was I barring you from leaving the cemetery of death or welcoming you into the garden of life? That's what I have braved my fears to find out. I fear you overestimate me either way. I cannot keep you in or set you free. As for paradise, I cannot even promise you a rose garden. Oh, well, Shimmy says. It's so wonderful that, because nice there's even a lovely reference to it's a song, isn't it? I never promised you yeah. a rose garden. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just, just to prove it's not all Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much. Pleasure. That's what's so lovely, to hear them. Not, they're not running rings around each other. That It's like a beautiful um, game of probably badminton. That's a bit slower than tennis. <laughs> yes. He's rather frightened by her loquacity. Um, and it was fun trying to write that because if she's... How do I make her loquacious while she's also losing words? Mm. And the one thing I didn't want to do was keep having her kind of... Gra- make a kind of comedy out of her... out of malapropisms or mm. anything like that. So I kind of asked the reader to float with me on this. This is not... For someone who's, who's struggling with words, she couldn't have been at every moment, you know, quite as smooth as this. But let's not bother with that. Let's just assume that this is... If this isn't what she says, it's what she means to say. Because that would have become tedious. Um, but he's, And then every now and then when it's important, you can see her not quite f- saying what she wants to say. But he, he's, he's spellbound. Yes, like you. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's spellbound. And... Although he's not educated in the way that she's educated, he's a serious student of something, and that's himself. He's a serious student himself and has been for 80-odd years. And any serious student of something will, you know, always have something to say and always have the language to say it. And because the way in which he's a student of, of himself, because he's not, he doesn't think he's great, because he's dealing with an, a deep, deep inadequacy but knows it would be tedious to, to, to overdo that inadequacy in conversation. Um, he's good company for her because she's bored rigid by, by boastful, vaunting men. And he's not like the others. She says at one point to him, I think, if your mother has made you, if it's your mother's fault, if you're a mother's boy, I think he said, I'm a mother's boy. And she says, well, I'm very grateful <laughs> to, <laughs> to her. Yeah, um, we just need to talk for a second. You brought it up there about... It's the lightest touch on dementia that I have ever 
come across, and there's a fair few things around, and I know you weren't trying to tap into something necessarily, but the fact that she, she has her methodologies, and I think people who know they've got dementia do actually do that. You know, she looks at the old school photograph. Um, she do, the, there is this absolutely wonderful thing that you do, that she, she, she calls herself the princess, so you call her the princess. And I think she means Herazada, that's the princess yes. that she's after. Yes. But she doesn't, she says anything at all that's, shh, shh, you know who has in Schweppes. Yes. And my favourite, Princess Schickelgruber, which I think yes. is hit, uh, yes. Yes. absolutely yes. wonderful. It was a brilliant joke. I mean, you're going to fall about laughing at that. But so you've got this lightest touch. She knows it's there. She's looking for ways around it and through it and succeeding rather brilliantly. Um, you know, that's, and using it as an excuse when it, suits her with her carers so as she does other things so don't you just give me you know where that comes from or is that just you know because you know you have hit a zeitgeist there but I don't think you meant it I felt very I felt very inadequate writing about this because I'm not a student of the subject um I've taken an interest in it um I've seen people in the family who have friends who are suffering a degree of it uh, and making something of it um, I wondered about whether going into this, and should I really be a student? And I thought, no, this is a novel. Um, and I had another intuition. And my intuition was, and I was worried about following this intuition in case it looked callous, because I don't want to make it out as though this is nothing very much and you can overcome it. I would never say that about any disability. Disability, if you feel it, you feel it. Um, but I thought, could it be possible? As a writer, I felt this. Could it be possible... Because in the act of writing her finding, losing words, you, you start inventing other things that she finds. You start inventing other words. You start creating some. And I thought it was almost as though my writing was imitating her, her, con her condition. In the losing, there is also a, f a finding. And I thought, is there a, could there be some sort of imaginative payoff here? Again, not to minimise the awfulness of the disease, particularly when it's, you know, on you fully, and it's not on her anything like fully. She's on in the foot yeah. in the foothills of dementia, and I thought the way she turns it to her to her benefit, which enables me to turn it to my benefit, made me wonder whether could it actually be? Could this be a fact? Could other could other people have noticed this among among those in a similar condition? That, that it's almost an, an imaginative opportunity briefly at least and I said this at a reading not long ago and w when the audience came to talk a woman said you've just described exactly what it's been like with my mother it's perfect perfect I'm not patting myself on the back for this I'm patting human beings on the pat on the on the back for this that it's she felt that this was right that one could say this that she'd seen it in her mother that in that didn't know how long it would last but in the in her attempt to keep on communicating and finding um, words or memories or things, she, she discovered a kind of mirth in it, a kind of resource in it. She wanted to say, this woman, she almost wanted to say, I felt that, you know, can this be another stage of the human imagination? Could there even be some point in it? Well, I don't follow that one through, because, you know, you'd end up saying, you know, yippee, we're all heading for that, and I'm not going to say that. But I was interested in that that it's, there are certainly, at some point, the and, and I know something about it, because we all start losing, we, I've been losing words for 30 years, I've lost names for 30 years, you know, I've had, you end up having to make jokes and make up statements to explain why you can't remember who a person is. And particularly if I have to sign books, if I, have an, if, if I give a, if I throw a, a launch party or something, and I've got friends there, and even family there, and they've come up with the book. I don't know who they are. I'm so surprised with that. They stare at me and they think, what do you mean you don't know who I are? You've invited me to the party. I'm, we were out for dinner last night. And then I have to say, well, it's simply the pressure. It's the pressure of um, the party. I've had a little bit too much to drink. I'm so excited to see you. You know what it's like when I see you going all flustered. So you start to tell a little, mm. you start to tell a little. But the truth is, your memory won't, won't give it to you. I don't just sympathise, I empathise. I've been there, well, I've done that. I, I look wildly to my husband, who's much better at it. Who the hell is this? I'm supposed to know. And you have to turn it into something. You have to, you have to turn it into something. So I was interested in that, 
mm. aspect of it, rather than I don't think of myself at all as anybody who knows anything about mm. this subject, as a psychologist might or as a linguistician might, I've just gone with my own intuition around it. And if I'm wrong, I apologise to anybody who's you know, seen people um, with bad cases of this and feel it's no laughing matter. Well, everything is a bit a laughing matter. It is a laughing matter. My mother is way down the road on this, but when she asked me the other day, and is your mother alive? What am I supposed to do? I thought it was hysterically funny. And she's perfectly happy. Yes, it's just that she's not quite That's terribly aware. I mean, it's a good one, that, isn't it? That's fantastic. You don't say, you're my mother. You know, you just say, yes. And then gently, perhaps a little later, you're my mother. So, you know, if you're not going to laugh, you're going to cry. And I think you're entitled to do both. And you can make us do both in a way. Well, it's my ambition, you mm. know. I, li I like that. I mean, making uh, a funny book is, for me, what a book's got to be. But that doesn't mean it's not also a sad or a deeply serious book. You use, you use as we do in life. As we do, I'm always surprised that people resent laughter in a book. Um, Look for it. <laughs> given, yes. And given that, you know, it's, it's one of our most important resources in life, mm. and if, if it's an important resource in life, it has to be an even an equally important resource in literature. But not light. I don't like light laughter. I don't like laughing over nothing mm. very much. I think the best laughter is the laughter that's you know comes in the train of catastrophe. Really, um, the landscape of the book is very familiar to me, and it would be perhaps to any North Londoner. And I'm afraid that is a Jewish sort of a landscape. Finchley Road, Little Stanmore. I have to check, actually. I didn't realise that Stanmore could, had a little Stanmore. I just looked it up, because I lived down the road from it. I'd never heard it called that before. And I was I, a bit surprised to discover there was a little Stanmore, because oh, I thought I invented it. <laughs> and then someone said, oh, yeah, little Stanmore. I come from little Stanmore. I said, you can't. I've invented it. <laughs> so I checked, and I thought, well, what do you know? There was a little... Because I thought, in my mind... Uh, no offence meant to citizens of Stanmore, but in my mind, you can't get more little than Stanmore. <laughs> so little Stanmore. But what do you know? There is one there. Oh, I so love the fact that I thought you would be much cleverer than me and you knew. I was, and I look, when I looked up, I thought, oh, yeah, of course, how stupid of me. No, it's brilliant. Invented. Yeah. <laughs> um, but th there is this landscape, isn't there? Even down to, you know, which side of Princely Road you're on. So I thought, you know, you'd really hit the nail on the head there. Well, I like the Finchley Road. I've always liked mm. the Finchley Road, and I could see which one of the few Chinese restaurants he's probably mm. working over. Oh, should we talk about that for a second? Yes, this, this, this wonderful hinterland that you've given him that is something to do, presumably, with his memory, how his uncle helps him, you know, yes. with the phrenology. He has got a wonderful hinterland, hasn't he? Yes. Phrenology is like, um, what, do you, what do you call ta the tarot, mm. only it's kind of slightly more serious than the, than the, the tarot. It's just a game that he learns to play, um, and his brother tries to steal that from him too. Mm. More than a game. He likes it because the idea that the fates might be controlling something, that there might be something beyond character explaining uh, us, is important to him because um, he doesn't like to think that the things he's done and that the failures that he has as a son and as a brother and things are all down to him. If it could have been decided beforehand, it's not all his fault. So he plays with those things. And phrenology too, mm. the idea that you can feel a bump and there's the bump, there's the shame yeah. bump. Mm. There's the bump that explains why he did what he did. There's the bump that explains why he can't help his mother. There's the bump that explains why he's not as smart as his brother. So he's interested in all those things. But the idea of him doing the cards in the Chinese restaurant comes from life because my dad did it. Oh, really? My yes. dad was a children's magician. Mm. And not only a children's magician. Mm. Not, not a great magician, but he just adored Good doing enough. all this. Mm. And have I exaggerated? Maybe this is an exaggeration, but what I want to say is that there I was in Manchester and I went into a famous Chinese restaurant on Princess Street oh. Uh, one night, probably with a girlfriend, and there was my dad <gasps> going from table to table <gasps> doing tricks. Table magic. Table mm. magic. Maybe I knew he was there, mm. but I liked the idea that I didn't know he was mm. there, and I was surprised. And I liked the idea that he'd come up to, th to my table, see me there, I'd go, my mouth would fall open, about to form the word dad, and he'd go, shh, I get it. But he loved doing it. And he did, didn't he, go from table to table. 
And at the end, I'm sure they didn't pay him, and they may have paid him. And at the end of the day, I think he could have, you know, whatever was left over. And my dad was had a big appetite, and he <laughs> could eat all that was all that was left over, all the duck, all the pancakes, all the spare ribs, as long as he got a steaming stein of lager, double lager with double lime, and he'd been happy. So it was a kind of tribute to what my dad did, and, and Shimmy is so unlike my dad, because my dad did, was unembarrassable. His tricks went wrong, he didn't care. I don't think my dad ever blushed in his life. It was a great charm he had. He was a kind of uh, Ephraim. Yeah, the great thing is that this Shimmy, who isn't apparently introverted, he does do this wonderful thing in the restaurant, the table magic, and we have to talk about the widows. I was going to say he's an old babe magnet or something like that, because he is, isn't he? And what do they say, that he can still do up his own flies? And yes, so he's forth. the most eligible mm. bachelor mm. in London because he walks without a stick, mm. he can do up his own flies, and he doesn't spit when he talks. Mm. This makes him quite a catch <laughs> for, women, for women of 80 for Jewish women of age. And that's the most Jewish mm. part of the book. Yep. The widows are the most Jewish part of the book. The, the, yeah, because there's a wonderful thing where one of them is trying to put on a sort of charity night involving the restaurant and, and, and his magic. And there's a whole list. You give the guest list, and it's every one of them is a widow, this, that, and the yes, other. Yes. I, I absolutely the love that. The widow Chomsky, the widow Marx, <laughs> the widow Wolfsheim, the widow Friedberg, yes. Absolutely terrific. And, of course, all the widows are after him, as you say, and they all want to get him on their own, and they like seductively crossing their legs, and we, you know, we're not quite sure what stage they're at of beauty. Well, they're, mm. they're a fair bit younger than... The, they're a mm. good decade younger than, than the princess, mm. who wouldn't dream of showing her legs the way the widow Wolfshine mm. does. But then the widow Wolfshine is famous for her legs. Mm. Well, if you're famous for your legs, you're going to flaunt it, aren't yes. you? Yes. Mm. And, you know, you can, if you look after your legs, mm. you can you keep, them, keep them quite... I'm very fond of the widow Wolfshine. She's probably um, got an exercise bike. I, would, I don't doubt it. She's, <laughs> I'm very fond of her. She's, she's a character I really kind of liked. Mm. And she'd like something from Shimmy. And it, she can't give Shimmy what the princess can. And he's surprised to discover himself actually choosing between women. He tries to work out, well, what's wrong with the widow Wolfshine? She's got good legs. She's got her own... She's wealthy. She's got her own ballroom. Why can't he? Mm. And it's, uh, she's too familiar to him. And I suppose what I mean by that is she reminds him maybe of his mother and the Jewish world. And the princess does not remind him of the Jewish world. Well, she's such a one-off, isn't she? You, you like your references, don't you? Um, there's lots and lots of Shakespearean quotes, which you often do. I mean, they're very, usually very famous. Um, Lots from Antony and Cleopatra, so I was quite pleased that I adore that and did it for A-level, well, that helps. So, and, uh, but they do, you know, they, sort of, they bed in beautifully. You, you love your quotes, don't you? You want to take your well, I'm steeped in. Mm. I am steeped in Shakespeare. I used mm. to teach Shakespeare. The first book I ever wrote was a book about Shakespeare with a colleague. Before I ever wrote a novel, I wrote a book, Shakespeare's Magnanimity, with my old Ooh, yes. colleague, late f f f friend and colleague, Wilbur Sanders. Um, and I just hear it. Mm. I just hear Shakespeare all the time when I'm when I'm writing. It's just in my just in my head. I've read a lot of it, uh, read read it more than I've watched it and taught it and written about. It, and I just hear them. So I mean, it was a good idea to make her an English teacher that also it was brilliant. Yes, so. I think it's almost a kind of obligation mm. of an English writer in our time to keep to keep the Shakespeare thing. I'm not saying I, I am keeping Shakespeare alive, but just to keep the idea of, you know, the Shakespeare terminology. Oh, I love that you do that. No, at one point, it's Lear, it's at the end, I know when one lives and one dies, yeah. which I can't even say without crying, no. which is ridiculous. So we should talk about your beautiful cover and your heroine is actually, I never know quite what to call her because she's got so many names, but I'm going to call her the princess because she likes that. Um, she is an embroiderer, but it's memento more. It's, it's yes. lots of skulls and quotes yes. like yes. that one that she yes. likes to embroider. She so li she's very interested in the idea that they look exquisite and beautiful and pastoral and sweet, and they're not. When you look closely, they've got skulls in mm. and things, and the words that she... Or some of them are occasionally from Shakespeare, mm. or she makes up her own slightly Shakespearean-sounding things about, about death and hopeless men and things... 
And it occurred to me, once I'd invented this, she loves teasing Euphoria. Mm -hmm. Euphoria says, oh, this is beautiful. And she says, it's not beautiful, it's murderous. <laughs> no, no, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. And she said, look, I, I did it. I know what it is. It's murderous. And it occurred to me, having done this, that um, I should get my sister-in-law, my brother's wife, Janet Haig, who's a well-known embroiderer, to do the jacket, if I get the publisher to agree, to do the jacket. Um, and so she did the jacket. And it's beautiful, but also itself full of wit. She com absolutely gets the idea that, you know, it, among all the beauty is, is death. And it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant jacket. Yes, I mean, I hope maybe we'll have be able to, to show that we should show the jacket because it's also got a hand, which is clearly Beryl's hand, um, because it's beautifully manicured, it's doing the stitching, but it is, you know, it is showing lovely signs of age because yes. we, we have to celebrate that. It's a lovely idea. There's one thread, mm. there's one thread of, mm. do you call it cotton? Yeah, cotton's good. Yeah, mm. Co good word, cotton. Needle one cotton. thread of cotton. Mm spilling out of the embroidery onto the back page and you see the back so it's a kind of a living mm. thing you see the, the hand on the back still doing it. it's brilliant just to get on to where we are now she's got these two sons she's managed to have one son who is a labor mp and another one who's a tory mp and she has utter contempt for the, both their fathers mm. i think well that echoes mm. the general mood at the yeah, moment that's what i was going to say where, but i was not you, the, no. i mean that would always have been my general mood i'm a mm. non-political person mm. i've never been affiliated to a party ever mm. um and i mean there are times when you you feel you need you need a party i mean for example how badly do we need a labor party now <laughs> we seriously badly need a labor party um that I don't think I've ever seen anything so despicable in my life as the as the cynicism of Boris Johnson. But beyond his cynicism, which we've always known about, the people who are backing him—it's a disgrace. I mean, there should not be. You look at what you look at the the Republican Party in America, and you think, how can one of them, how can one of them look themselves in the mirror in the morning mm. and go on supporting him? It's not wouldn't be like that here. We've got the same. How dare one of them? actually listen to that and try and sell it to us on television. Well, what the Prime Minister is doing, no, he isn't, and we know he isn't, and you know he isn't, and we know you're lying, and we know you know that he doesn't give a damn about the whole thing. It's a disgrace. Do we need an opposition before? So what do we get for an opposition? We get Corbyn and the party he's helped turn into, you know, an anti-Semitic mm. morass. Not that that's its only problem, but that is its problem. So to whom do you turn? There's nobody to whom you turn, and it must be a you know it must be a Jewish pastime at the moment. Who do we want? And they're such perfect, they're perfect opposites, and yet they meet in their rigidities. The utter, the utter cynic who will who who thinks he can look us in the eye and tell us he believes something, and it's a cynicism. Boris Johnson's cynicism is a sort I've never encountered before, and I've met some self-serving cynicism. This is believing in nothing except that which will give you whatever it is that your will or ambition wants, versus this, you know, this man pickled in an ideology, the Corbyn ideology, which he's been pickled in since, since before he was even born. He was born pickled, <laughs> pickled in the 1930s. Mm. So choose. You can't choose between those two. No, because they're opposite poles, but they come, you know, they come together, don't they? Come together in our, mm. in our repugnance. And, and there's not, there's no viable, credible alternative. I mean, we could go on talking about this all day and probably well, shouldn't. Not, but because we're then no, talking about the Liberal yeah. Democrats, and yeah. they, which uh, is well, fine. They're, but, but they're doing better. Yes, yes, yes and, I'll, and I'll probably vote for them. It is about, you know, the effects of the B word. And I don't mean our Prime Minister. In this. I think B is a very bad letter at the moment. So um, it's not as bad as Z. Uh, Z. Z is a killer. Zionism. Yes, yes. The reason those people who hate Zionism hate it so mm. much is because it begins with a Z. Do you think? Yeah. Oh. Z. Because a Z suggests Zoroastrian <laughs> or something mm. secret. Secret. Mm. Secret. Jewish secrecy. Mm. Jews boiling up some vile. Oh. You know. No. We, well, I think that's very interesting. I've never thought of that one. Jews are in some massive conspiracy like the, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion. Zion. Yes, yes. I think they don't quite grab that we could be anti 
bad behavior towards the Palestinians, um, and, but still know that Israel needs to be there. So we'd like a new leader for that, wouldn't we? Certainly would. Yeah. We'd like mm. a new leader for everywhere. We want the Young. Prime Minister oh. of New Zealand. Mm. Yes, New Zealand, to be Prime Minister of everywhere. You do actually have a line, we couldn't be alive at a worse time, which would have been a very nice lead into what we were just talking yes, about. Yes, <laughs> Did you ever occur to you that Benedict Cumberbatch and Dominic Cummings have the same beginning to their surnames, worryingly? You know, uh, he played him on television. Uh, and no, and I saw mm. that programme. Mm. <laughs> isn't, isn't it interesting that we, we're supposed to have wanted to leave the EU mm. because we want our sovereignty back? And the, whole, and the party that wants its sovereignty back is being run by some scallywag who's been elected by no one. I mean, it's like you couldn't make it up because there are people in your book who are a bit like that. Mm. Mm. It's very frightening. The most frightening thing of all, of course, the most frightening thing of all at the moment in our time is not the cynicism, it's not the ideology, it's the fact that the people who will buy it. Mm. It's human gullibility. That's the most terrifying thing. What about the divisiveness that everyone's talking about? Very simple. Mm. What I like now is that there's a very simple way of knowing who's a scoundrel or not. Mm. If somebody uses the phrase, the will of the people, they're a scoundrel. You remember what was Dr. Johnson's thing about patriotism is the last refuge? Was it the scoundrel? Mm. It's changed now. Mm. Democracy. Yes. Democracy is. And it makes me very impatient. I mean, I've written about it and spoken about it and been on Rain Ray and, so, and all over the place, but I still cannot see, see someone talking about democracy on television without wanting to scream. That is not what democracy mm. means. And are you telling me that as long as a majority of the people have voted for something, we must have it? What if a majority of the people say we want to behead anybody, anybody Jewish, black, uh, Muslim, or born before 2000? They want a majority of this, the will of the people. Must we do it? No, because we know that the will of the people sometimes will take us in the wrong direction. And, that, and therefore, it is no principle to be guided by that the will of the people want. It is no principle. And that's the end of the conversation. But on they go, and on they go, and on they go. And they are the scoundrels, the will of the people scoundrels. And, and do you think that, that they have divided in order to rule then? Because the divisions are so great now in this country, apparently. Well, the scoundrels... Um, the scoundrels are playing the people, what's, and that always happens. Trump plays the people. Mm. Dicta the di uh, successful dictatorships are always semi-dictatorships of the people. You speak directly to the people, get the people behind you. Shakespeare knew it. With, um, see it in mm. Julius Caesar. Get, get, the people, get the people behind you. Move the people who, who would move like that. Mm. Say anything to them and they'll be moving a mob. Um, mm. Because people become... It's not... People become a mob when they act together. People are fantastic individually. The, only, the time that you fear people is when they act together, and that's when they become a mob. No individual is a mob. The mob is what happens when individuals get together and are swayed together. And it, life, is very, life is very dangerous whenever more than three people agree about anything. I await your French Revolution novel. You're not going to get it. <laughs> okay. I think I ought to say I can't thank you enough because I think we've been round some very interesting houses in it's this been conversation. Fun. It's my pleasure. Mm. Thank you. It always is. Thank you so much, Howard Jacobson, for speaking to me for Jewish Renaissance and for Jar Out Loud.